Today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening, Redemption Arcadia. How are we doing? Good, good. My name is Josh Prather. I'm an elder here at Redemption Arcadia, and I'm a pastor centrally at Redemption Church. I oversee our community and global initiatives, which is um, centrally what we do to try to love the last, lost, and least locally and globally. But every once in a while, I get the privilege and opportunity to preach, so that's what I'm, I'm going to be doing today. So um, it's an honor. Pray with me if you would, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this time. God, I pray over your word. God, I pray you use me as you see fit. God, I pray that your word would go forth in power. You would fill me with your spirit, God, and you would form us into the image of Jesus. Remove everything aside that may be hindering us from listening to you. And I say that about myself as well. God, all the idols that we wrestle with and all the things we want to be known for, I pray that you would be central to this message and to this time. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So just a little bit to set the stage for where we're at in the book of Acts. We're going to be, if you have your Bible, you can open it with me to Acts 1, starting in verse 12. Frank opened us up last week in the series, just talking at the beginning of Acts about Jesus ascending, but saying, hey, before you actually go out as a witness into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you need something first, and what you need is the Spirit. It's pivotal that you have the Spirit before this actually happens. So they watch Jesus go up into heaven. An angel comes and says, why are you here? You're going to see Jesus come the same way that he went. So they go. They're up in the room together. They're praying. The disciples and the women, they're together praying. And it says something that I'm going to say repeatedly. It's going to be a focus of what we're going to talk about. They're in one accord. The disciples and the women, they're in one accord. They're praying together. And then we pick up, if you would pick up with me, in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus." What Peter is trying to do is draw everyone back and say, Judas, who is numbered among the 12 but betrayed Jesus, was not a mistake. From the very beginning, I'm going to use these two words a lot, God has always had a promise for his people, and he has always had a purpose for his people. And Peter is starting to understand the significance of the 12. 11 is not enough. We need 12, and 12 has strength to it. And it shows God's promise to his people. And this is a time of preparation. The spirit is about to be poured out. And the disciples are preparing themselves. 
Verse 17, pick up with me. For he was numbered, numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama. I don't know how to pronounce that. You take a guess. That is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Matthew 27, three through 10 gives a bit fuller account of what actually happens with Judas, but the two easily coexist and harmonize with one another. Peter bases his decision, decision to replace Judas, what he's quoting here, is Psalm 69.25 and 109.8, because people are understandably questioning God's faithfulness and his promise. If God has a plan, why would he actually gather someone into his core inner circle, the 12 disciples that is going to betray him? But when we speak about the church as the people of God in the world and inquire into the real nature of the church, we cannot avoid speaking about the roots of the church, which are to be found in the Old Testament idea of Israel as God's people of the covenant, God's promise to his people as seen in the 12 disciples. If you go back, you don't need to flip there. I'm going to talk through it just for a moment. You come back to Genesis 12, and you see that God makes a promise to someone named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, you are going to, uh, to be a blessing. And this blessing will ultimately turn into the 12 tribes of Israel that will be a light to the nations. I'm going to bless you, this one man. You're going to turn into 12 tribes. And these 12, 12 tribes are going to be a blessing to every single nation. You come to Genesis 15, and understandably so, Abraham's questioning, and God says, fear not. I promise I'm going to bless you. He brings him out, and he says, look at the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you this many descendants, and you're going to have a land. You're going to have an inheritance. I promised I will bless you. And Abraham still, he's doubting. He says, God, I doubt this blessing. So God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to Find all these animals, gather them together, cut them in half, and make a path running through these animals. And Abraham understood this because this is common for covenant ritual. And he understood, or he thought, he understood what was about to take place. So God causes a deep sleep to fall over him. He comes to, and he sees a torch that represents God walking between the pieces. And Abraham is astonished because a covenant has just been formed, but not the way he thought. Because normally he thought, God's about to make a covenant. And what's going to happen is I'm going to be the one that walks through these pieces. And what that symbolizes is that if I am unfaithful to this covenant and my promise to God, I will be cut in half. I'm going to be torn limb from limb. But he never walks through. But Yahweh does. Yahweh walks through and says, I will be faithful. I will bless you. And if I'm unfaithful, I will be torn limb from limb. But not only that, Abraham, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to be torn limb from limb. And you continue on through Genesis, you come to Exodus, continue on in the Old Testament, and what you see is that this one man becomes a great nation. He becomes 12 tribes. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, Israel is unfaithful. They are not the blessing that God had originally intended them to be. They are not God's chosen people 
They are not, well, they are God's chosen people, but they're not fulfilling what God chose them to do. So when you come to the end and you come to the prophets, the end of the Old Testament, you see this longing in the prophets. There's a longing for God to bless his people, for God to actually bring the blessed one and let his people be the blessing to the whole world. So pick up with me in verse 20. I just want to read it again. So at the end of verse 20, it says, let another take his office. And then if you continue forward, it says, so one of the men who, is, who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Peter now knows. Peter understands. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know, Peter never understands, <laughs> right? But now Peter, Peter gets it. He understands two things. He understands what God is doing with these 12 men and the power that they represent, and he's also understanding the resurrection. He's understanding that these men symbolize, these 12 men symbolize God's faithfulness to the 12 tribes of Israel. I told you, Israel, I was going to bless you. You didn't believe me. Look at these 12 men. I have regathered you. I promised I always would. I would not leave you. And you see me regathering, regathering my people right here in these 12 men. God fulfills his promises to his people. And there needed to be 12, a symbolic number that represents the 12 tribes of Israel. You see in Romans 1, 16, Acts 3, 26, 13, 46, that God says, Israel, I'm regathering you. I promised I always would to the Jew first. I'm calling you to myself. And then from that to the Gentiles, to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But not just that, Peter's understanding what the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus actually mean. He understands the 12, but he understands the power of God's covenant with his people. Because Jesus shows up and he's saying, my lost sheep, my people, I am the blessing that has been promised to Abraham. I embody it right here. Come to me. I am regathering, I'm regathering you right now, my my promise to you to, to bring the nations to myself. And Jesus has this incredible image. And he uh, illustrates it best by saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that have been sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Look, your house, your house is left desolate. That's Matthew 23, 37 through 38. Here's the picture that God paints with Abraham and the picture that he paints with Jesus. Is he's saying, I am regathering you to myself. I've been faithful. And because you have been unfaithful, Jesus is saying, come, come underneath my wings, Israel. Whosoever will, I'm calling you to come. And the image takes us to a farmhouse because it was commonplace if there was a farmhouse fire for the hen to gather all her chicks underneath her wings. And what you would find when the fire subsides is the hen is scorched, the hen is burnt, the hen is dead, but the chicks are alive. And Jesus is saying, I am the one that is going to be torn limb from limb because you have been unfaithful. And if you would just come to me, 
If you would just find rest underneath my wings, you would be safe. Jesus telling his people to come to him if they just would. But there's also something more to it. It's that Jesus in the resurrection is trying to form a new humanity. And that's what we get from this one, from our passage, is that it's a new humanity of one accord that is centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter now understands the power of the resurrection. He understands the suffering of Jesus, Jesus calling everyone, Israel, back to himself, and these 12 men representing that. But he also understands that nothing will ever be the same because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Leslie Newbigin puts it this way, and I think it's great. We are speaking about a happening, an event that can never be fully grasped by our intellectual powers and translated into a theory or doctrine. We are in the presence of a reality full of mystery, which challenges but exceeds our grasp. Down the centuries from the first witness until today, the church has sought and used immeasurable symbols to express the inexpressible mystery of the event that is at the center, the crisis of all cosmic history, the hinge upon which all happenings turn. The cosmos is moving in this direction. All of creation, sin, death, evil, decay, humanity, sin, death, evil, decay, and hell, Jesus rises from the dead, and the whole cosmos now shifts, and it's moving towards hope. In the resurrection of Jesus, it secures new life for God's creation and new life for a humanity that will repent and believe in Jesus. And Peter knows this, and that's why he's saying we have to have somebody with us that understands it. We have to have somebody with us that was there when Jesus was alive, when Jesus died, and when he was resurrected from the dead, because things will never be the same. The uh, Argentinian church leader, Rene Padilla, says this, talking about a new humanity in the Western church. He says that Western Christianity has concentrated on the salvation of the individual soul, but has frequently disregarded God's purpose to create a new humanity. And that's what we're seeing right here in our passage. Preparing for mission, preparing for the spirit. God has promised, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. And they're gathered together as one accord, praying together. Let's remind ourselves, who are these 12 men that are gathered together? So you have Simon Peter, James, or Simon Peter, James, John, and Andrew, all are fishermen. You have Matthew or Levi, who is a tax collector. You have Simon the Zealot, who is part of a movement to overthrow Roman rule by any means necessary. And here's what R.C. Sproul says about these men, the 12, the representation of Israel, one accord gathered together. Sproul points out that the 12 represented the church in, in miniature. We see among them the kind of diversity of backgrounds that the church is to reflect, Additionally, we know that the regular band of disciples or, or learners who followed Jesus included not only the 12 apostles, but also many other men and women, such as Mary Magdalene, Susanna, and Jonah. These men are extraordinarily different, but extraordinarily ordinary as well. But they're band together, 
one accord in prayer, and they together will be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? You hear this news that cosmic history will never be the same. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Israel, I am fulfilling my promise to you. I'm regathering the 12. And here they are, Simon, fishermen. Everybody's like, yay. You know? And then you got a, a zealot. Everybody's like, yay. You know, people, people are confused. Right? This, these are the men? These are the men that are representing God's new humanity brought together. We have zealots, we have fishermen, we have a tax collector. And think about the diversity of opinion. You have one man that is actually siding with Roman rule as a tax collector and one man that's willing to do anything to overthrow it. And these are the men that God binds together in one accord to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're not just bound together individually. You have to imagine them of one accord. Six times, six times in the book of Acts, we see that these men are not to separate. They're to be together in their differences, in their diversity, in the backgrounds that make them up. They're to bind together and be of one accord. And this is going to be the staging ground for God to pour out his spirit. So I want to recap what we need to know. What do you need to know about this passage? Is God has a promise for the 12 tribes that you see fulfilled in the 12 disciples. And Jesus is at the center of it. Jesus is God's promise and his blessing. The promise he gave to Israel and now he gives to the church. I've come back for you. I've fulfilled my promise to you. God has a purpose for his people. He had a purpose for Israel, and he has a purpose for the church today, and that is to be a blessing. I have blessed you in Jesus, and the purpose of this blessing is for you to be a blessing. But at the center of this, at the center of the blessing and their call to be a blessing is a new humanity that is formed now of one accord and centered on the resurrection Frank said this last week, he said, how we live as a citizen in our community is our politic. So that's what we need to talk about. We now know what we need to know, that universal history will never be the same because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're a piece of that in this room now. But what does that look like? So in the 21st century, coming to Phoenix, and in light of Martin Luther King Day, I think we need to talk about what it is to be a new humanity of one accord that is centered together on the resurrection. So just a little uh, bit of racial statistics in Phoenix. I think it's good for us to understand in light of what Martin Luther King was trying to do, where we sit in Phoenix, where we sit in the church, what this means for us. And just let me sidebar. It's sad that I know I'm going to have this conversation and immediately it's going to become political and I don't want it to. Now, Christians cannot withdraw from politics, but the reason I'm having this conversation is centrally the church. I'm not trying to talk about politics. I'm not trying to talk about our work in society as much as I'm trying to talk about the church, what this means for believers and followers of Jesus Christ, how this distinguishes us as God's people. So roughly, give me grace on the statistics, 45% white, 41% Hispanic, 7% black, and then other, that kind of makes up Phoenix. And you have 
some, and Phoenix has become increasingly diverse since, since 2000, leading to 2016. And you have pockets where you really see diversity in Phoenix, this tapestry that's woven together. But by and large, what you find in Phoenix is a quilt. It's what you see is a white community, you see a poor community, you see a black community, you see a Hispanic community, and this is what we call a, a racialized society, which I'll talk about more in just a second. So this is Phoenix, a quilt, where you have all of these sectors division right next to one another, but often not a tapestry woven together in relationship together. And would we say the church is like that as well? Are we seeing this in our personal relationships? And when I talk about the church, I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about the organization as much as I'm talking about the individual scattered believers, God's people in the world. Would we say the church represents this? And I would say, by and large, yes. It does. It does represent this. In their book, Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America, two sociologists did a study and they interviewed 2,000 people, 200 face-to-face interviews, and they drew some really good statistics and some understanding about the evangelical church that I think will be good for us. First, when I talk about evangelical church, here's what I'm referring to, because that that gets politicized. One more thing that gets hyper-politicized, right? So let me define evangelical Christian like this. We would say that you must be converted, you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ, We would say that the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is central to the faith. We would believe in the Bible, that the authority of God's word has bearing in our lives and in his church. And we would believe that when we come to saving faith in Jesus, that that thrusts us out as God's people in, in the world to proclaim and live in word and deed the good news of Jesus Christ. So when I use evangelical, those are the four things I'm talking about. Okay, not a political vision, but just this vision right here. And we would say we are a conservative evangelical church by those definitions. So in their studies, what they found out is Christianity, every Christian that they spoke to, and this study was done in 2000, but I believe it's the same today. 2017, I believe it's the same today. In their study, 2,000 people that they interviewed, 200 face-to-face interviews, Every single person, by and large, that they spoke to said that racial division was a bad thing. So we're not talking about the people in this room saying that racial division is a wonderful thing. Let's celebrate it. (laughs) Everybody said, no, this is not the way it should be. And Christians should be at the front end of it. So they found both of these things. Racial division, not a good thing. Christians should be at the extent of it. But they also found that most white evangelicals didn't see race as an ongoing issue at the time. That this was an issue of the past. Once again, I bring this up in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King to have this discussion because it has to be had as a church. They would say, race is no longer an issue for us. Why are we concerned with it? And they said that this is a breakdown of a theological worldview among white evangelicals. Because they said most white evangelicals focus on the spiritual world, evangelism, and spiritual discipleship. But they neglect to focus on the deed actions and the love actions and the society actions that God calls us to live in the world. And he has a few different reasons for this. He says part of it is not wanting to rock the boat, he says. Part of it 
It's just saying that if individuals come to know Jesus, that society gradually, naturally will start to change and we'll start to see the tapestry. No longer will we be the quilt if more people come to know Jesus. But statistically and historically, we see that is just not the case. And their, their conclusion was that the evangelical church, by and large, has not done good in actually helping with this problem, but has actually hurt it more than it's helped it and led more to the racialized society that we see today. And we see today in Phoenix. And here's what I mean by racialized society, for those who are like, what's a racialized society? Is that socioeconomic inequality you see across racial lines, very clear, see that in Phoenix. Residential segregation across racial lines, I said that before, you see white, brown, black, across racial lines, very clear. There's low intermarriage rates, still mostly marriage within our race, and intimate personal relationships reveal very clear racial distinctiveness. So that's how they defined, are we living in a racialized society? Sidebar, let me come back to why we're talking about this. The gospel, the church, the resurrection, a new humanity centered on the resurrection of one accord, gathered together, bound together. We cannot be separated. You can picture the disciples in the room holding hands. We cannot be separated. We're together, centered on the resurrection, right? And that's what we're discussing. But Dr. Martin Luther King saw that he lived in a racialized society, so he spoke out against it. And sadly, what he saw was not only that he didn't get a lot of support from the white conservative evangelical church, it was actually the opposite. Although white people did come alongside of him, but most of the time, it was liberal Christians, it was Catholics, it was Jews, and it was, and it was atheists. Evangelicals sided against blacks, actually, in the South. And in the North, once again, what the book says and what I agree with is they were held captive to the worldview that said what we need to care about is the spiritual world. And if we care about that, we let society take care of itself. Billy Graham was actually invited to uh, the March on Washington in 1963. A lot of you know who Billy Graham is, a famous evangelist, a wonderful evangelist. I speak highly of Billy Graham, but not in this instance. And this is just to reveal the worldview that was shaping the church at this particular time. Following the speech, he didn't actually go to the speech, but following the speech, he said, only when Jesus comes again will we actually see little black girls holding hands with little white girls in Alabama. He said, we're never going to see it until Jesus comes again. Now, following this, Billy Graham has since repented and said, no, we need to be involved in racial justice. This is a part of what God has called us to do. And since the 60s, since Martin Luther King, the conversation has only risen. So we talk about it a lot. The church is engaged in a plethora of areas that I don't want to go too far into, a lot of them. And we've come a long way. We really have, church. We've come a long way since the 1700s where the white conservative evangelical church didn't see black folks as fully human. We've come a long way. And we've come a long way since Jim Crow segregation. We have. But I think we have a long way to go. I think we have a long way to go. And I think if we personally reflect of our personal lives, are our personal lives racialized? Do we see it? Do we see it in our personal relationships? Do we see it in our, 
in our workplace? Do we see it in our community? Do we see it in where we live? Do we see us being a part of the racialization? Or are we of one accord, once again, the church, brothers and sisters, bound together, centered on the resurrection? So what has actually led to today, to where I, I think, I believe, that we still live in a racialized society, and oftentimes God's people still are a part of the racialized system. So what actually leads to that? I think two things. One is that we are a part of the homogenous unit principle, which isn't that profound. It sounds profound. And it states that it's easier to be a Christian when you don't have to cross racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Pretty much it's easier to hang with your peeps. It's easier for us. So why would we cross a hard division when it's just easier to be with our people? And the second one, and this comes from the black church, the evangelical black church, has a hard time today. This is, I'm taking us to 2017. Has a hard time in 2017 that white evangelicals still are not engaged in changing societal structures. They've seen the need for individual reconciliation and repentance in the white evangelical church, but the black church is looking at the white church saying, why aren't you bound together with us to change society? Why aren't you with us? Why do you still not believe us? Why are you not with us? And these two things, I think, are still what's holding us captive today. Now, I know some of you are going to argue against this and say a few things. You're going to say that there's not systemic racial injustices in the 21st century, You control your own destiny, and if you're in a bad place, it's no one's fault but your own, and you control your own destiny. And if you're talking about racial injustice, it's only out of self-interest. Now, I know, just because I know you. (laughs) I'm an elder here. I know you. I know a lot of you are thinking that, and I'm not going to refute a lot of those, those arguments right now because I would love for you to be in conversation across racial lines, having that conversation with a brother and sister in Christ. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I'll have it with you. But how did I get to this place personally? How did I get to this place where I don't even want to talk about this because of personal relationships with brothers and sisters that pushed me into this and said, bind with us, one accord, new humanity for the sake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a challenge for us. And true discipleship is not just knowing, but Frank said this last week, but it's experience. It's not just knowing, but it's experience. Because I believe if I went around and I asked every single one of you about your Christian beliefs, not one of you in the room would say that racial division is a good thing. Would you say that it's good that black folks don't hang out with white folks and don't hang out with brown folks and we're not in the same room together, our dinner tables don't reflect it? Would you say it's a good thing? No, but what does your experience tell you? Are you living it? You might believe it, you might feel it, but show me your life. Are we living as a new humanity, bound together? I keep saying it because it's biblical. This isn't a conversation about politics, it's a conversation about the Bible and our role as Christians in the 21st century. And I think we have to move towards reconciliation. And here's what John Perkins says. John Perkins says this, if we want to take, take steps towards reconciliation first, individuals of different races must develop primary relationships with each other. What does your Saturday night look like? 
Who's at the table? I had a good pastor, it's a friend of mine, that says, our Sunday morning only reflects our Saturday night. Because we were talking about how do you actually, what, how do you move towards having a diverse church that reflects the kingdom of God, new humanity, one accord? And he said, what's your Saturday night look like? So I ask you that, church, what's your Saturday night look like? Who are you kicking it with? Who are you hanging out with? Who are you spending time with on Saturday night? That's number one. Second is the church recognizing social structures of inequality and actually moving together as one in changing societal structures. And once again, you could come to me if you don't believe societal injustices still exist. We could have that conversation. I'll walk you through a lot of things that I see, but I would prefer that conversation across the table with a brother and sister in Christ. That's what I would prefer. Third is that whites must repent of personal, historical, and social sins. This is the challenge that the black church has primarily, is we repent of our individual sins, but are we repenting of historical and social sins? Do we actually see ourselves as bound together with brothers and sisters of the past, bound together with brothers and sisters of the present, and say we are one, even if we don't like it, we must repent of the sin that we see in the world. And they say, if we don't repent, all we're going to see is this injustice passed down from generation to generation until eventually it'll come to our kids. And fourth is that black people must be willing, if whites ask, to forgive individually and corporately. Corporate. Corporate forgiveness. And it says that black folks must repent if they've been angry against white folks for injustices or or prejudice. You know, the book honestly doesn't end on a high note. It says that what we've read and what we've seen is that there's only been proven, it's only been proving, proven that the white evangelical church has done more harm than good in this conversation. So what, do, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Let us gather to ourselves one of these men who has become with us and will become with us a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What hope do we have? Jesus rose from the grave and he tells us that nothing has to be the same because of it and we cannot allow it to be the same. It is our call as a people. It is what God put us in this world to be a people that reflect his kingdom to a world that is divided, and we see it, and I know you see it in Phoenix. And we cannot allow it, church. We cannot possibly allow it. So in honor of Dr. King, I just want to say this, that let us not wallow in the valley of despair, church. And even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. I have a dream that is deeply rooted in the biblical dream. I have a dream that one day the church will rise up and live out of its tr the true meaning of its creed. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but all are one, one in Christ Jesus. I have a dream that one day Arcadia will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. That one day, right here in Arcadia, it will be commonplace to see little black boys and black girls joining hands with little white boys and white girls.
as sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that we must live with in Phoenix. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of the church into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day indeed. And this will be the day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life our, our redemption to win and open the life gate that all, one accord, unified, may go in. And if this church is to be great in Phoenix, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from Arcadia. Let freedom ring from Camelback Mountain. Let freedom ring from Squaw Peak. Let freedom ring from Biltmore Fashion Park. Let freedom ring from the Henry. But not only that, let freedom ring from South Mountain. Let freedom ring from the Superstition Mountains. Let freedom ring from White Tank Mountain. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Ring, And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, we will let it ring from every house and every apartment and every church in our city. We will be able to speed up the day when all God's children, black, white, brown, rich, and poor, native or foreign, Jews or Gentiles, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of that old black spiritual Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Pray with me, church. Father, I give you this church. It belongs to you, God, and we're just trying to be faithful to do what you have called us to do. God, so I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you give us your spirit. You're asking us to be a people that the world doesn't fully understand. You're asking us to be a people that challenges our comfort. You're asking us to be a people, God, that challenge us to our core. And I pray that your church may be one. You and us, us and you, perfectly one. May there be no division in your church. This is how we prepare ourselves to be sent on mission in the world to love our neighbor. Jesus, it's a task we cannot accomplish. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we just pray that you would guide us in this task for the sake of your name and your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.